So this is actually not bike talk. This is this American bike. I mean, it's a sub. It's, like it's, a, it's a, a segment of bike talk, this sure. American bike. So I don't know yeah. if it should have the same theme song. but Yeah. Uh, yeah, we should. It's, it's all under the theme of bike talk. All right. Cool. Branding, baby. Let's do branding. So I did this, uh, I'm branching out, I, I went on to, I'm doing this episode about bike Twitter. Okay. Have you heard the term? Bike Twitter? Yeah. Mm, maybe. Why? Is there a specific subcategory of Twitter called bike Twitter? I mean, it's not like official, but bike Twitter is like, I guess, the deep state or the dark web. You know, but it's not actually, but it's, uh, it's just people on Twitter that, that are into uh, posting about bike stuff like myself. <laughs> and I found three people who had these like kind of, they were like ads in a way, but they were like anti-car ads. And so I, I interviewed these, I reached out and they all we're happy to do it. And you ready for let's this? Go, let's go right into it. All right. So this first one is about a tweet with that Lindsay Sturman did. And she lives in LA. And she wrote this great tweet about the Koch brothers and how they've created more car culture. This, uh, I don't know if it's a spinoff of Bike Talk, but it's, I'm calling it This American Bike. Mm-hmm. And the theme for this week is uh, PSAs. Uh, that people take it upon themselves to make well, that I found on Twitter. Uh-huh. That's so cool. You did this thread on Twitter that had how, like, I, I mean, do you remember like it pretty well, the thread? But yeah, yeah. No, I know it. I spent a long time on it. So do you normally do things like that? No, I, um... I was, I went on like a Twitter deep dive maybe a year ago about, because of the homeless situation in LA. And I was trying to figure out why is this happening? And I did this sort of Twitter deep dive. I, I love Twitter because you get, you get to find so many great articles and find people to follow who are so smart about these issues. And as I was going deeper and deeper into it, I just came to really believe that traffic is the reason we can't build housing. And mm-hmm. I think I, I shared with you my blog post, do we really need all these cars? And I know it sounds crazy and it's so complicated and so counterintuitive. I was like, I can say this, but no one's going to believe me. So I put it together in a Twitter thread and with photos and articles explaining it. So you could really see what I'd come to believe. And it's, it's so, and it's so important that we understand it because how are we going to solve these problems if we don't actually understand what's causing them? But it's so hard to believe because the story I'm about to tell you is insane. I think the first question we were all asking is, why don't we just build more housing? You see an empty lot, an abandoned house, just build some apartments. And the answer is because the neighbors will fight it. The neighbors will go to all the meetings, all the public comment. They will make it their life's mission to stop apartments from getting built. We know this, right? Well, why do they fight it? And if we're compassionate, what are their real reasons? I really think it's traffic. I mean, when you listen to people at these community meetings, they're complaining about traffic. To be compassionate about it, traffic is horrible. You know, I mean, we're all living in a traffic nightmare in LA. So how do you get rid of traffic? (laughs) There's pretty much one way, which is that you don't have cars. (laughs) You have many fewer cars and you let people bike, but we make it so dangerous to bike. There are people who are, you know, very brave and will bike. But, you know, if you have kids, if you're older, there's a lot of reasons you just, I'm just too fearful. And I would love to bike. I would totally get rid of my car and bike everywhere if I could. And I grew up in Manhattan without, you know, we never drove anywhere. Our parents just let us <laughs> run around the city. That kind of freedom I loved as a kid. And we don't, my, you know, my kids can't have that because I have to drive them everywhere. I think it contributes to anxiety in kids. We know it contributes to ADHD. It obviously can, has all these health effects. And when you just start to imagine, God, what could our lives be like 
if you could just bike everywhere in LA. A friend said, I spend seven hours a day in a car driving my kids around. The idea that you'd have a cargo bike and that's how you get your kids around is like, that's not something we're doing and we should. I mean, it's great. Well, and then, superheroes do it. Right. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I do feel like it's, it's coming. People are starting to see it. And obviously they're seeing it all over the world, which is, it's hard to not be jealous that, you know, Paris is figuring it out. London is figuring it out. Milan is figuring it out. Yeah. How and, far behind those places do you think LA is? Uh, we're usually like what, several hundred years behind? <laughs> I think it, ha you know, we romanticize cars. Americans do in LA, you know, Angelinos do. I keep thinking of this as car blindness. I was going to say you have to have car blindness, you, you know. Right. Otherwise you'd be like, what are we yeah. doing? But it's like how we were about smoking. We, we just saw it as cool. It was a symbol of freedom. It was, it makes you tough, right? These are all the things. That's how we associate cars, but it's advertising. And it's like, you want to know, proves that advertising works. <laughs> Look at these cars people are buying. These enormous cars. I mean, they're like, the, the, the grills are like five feet. I mean, and- and, and taller I, than children. Yeah. That the car commercials are actually advertising to make you feel like it's a symbol of toughness. Mm -hmm. they're, they're literally saying, and somebody had this joke that like, oh, it was on your podcast. It was um, that people are driving their Land Rovers around like at, at these crazy speeds now because there are no cars on the road as if they're like in a dystopian future, which they bought the Land Rover in case they have to live in. Yeah, that's self-fulfilling. Wait, you heard you're a listener? I, I listened to a bunch and I, it was, um, oh. I love the, I love it. You did the blog post. Where was the blog post again? Oh, about uh, Abundant Housing LA's website. Uh, and the other one is uh, the Koch brothers. Yeah. Uh, that for me was, I don't know, something about it just seemed so, it was like a really great PowerPoint. Uh, do you think we could do justice to it in, in audio? Sure, let's try. So the first slide. This is a story about two men with a dream, Charles and David Koch. And that dream was that everyone in the world would own a car and buy their oil and our neighborhoods would look like this. And then it's a picture of one of those crazy highway interchanges with like, I mean, God, there's so many levels and, you know, curly cues. And it, it's like when you think about this is the neighborhood you want. And I, I was I was also starting it with this idea that the absurdity that this dream these guys have is somehow progressives are we're living this dream <laughs> and why like, you're carrying the Koch brothers water. Yeah. So here's the second slide. Continuing their dream. We would all drive cars and our commutes would look like this while the planet melts. And then it's a photo of a traffic jam. I believe it's in China and it's 50 lanes of cars wow. all trying to funnel into <laughs> a few, a smaller number of lanes. That's the photo. And it's just, it's just insanity. Yes. Um, okay, the next one. The Coke political machine wanted us in cars so badly, they gave $127 million to fight public transportation in Nashville, Little Rock, and unsuccessfully in Phoenix and deny climate science. So we know that they fund climate science denial, but they're also fighting public transportation. I mean, it's like who fights public transportation? I, and I, I think there's a geometric geometry problem. If you have a 10 story apartment building in New York, we don't have a lot of them out here, but there's no, where would you even put the cars to park them? How could you ever fit them in? They, it doesn't fit. That's why 80% of people who live in Manhattan don't own a car. And so the, the, the idea that we would give so much over to cars and, and Manhattan's a, a great example of a place that could overnight, they could take out, I mean, you could really limit cars to people who absolutely need them, which is, of course, you need to do, um, and to cabs and deliveries. And it's, it's not even on the table there, but like they let people drive in from New Jersey for a few dollars and park for free. I, I, I just, it's like when you really think about it, you're like, why? And then it's next to impossible to bike in. Um, all right, should I keep going? Yeah. Okay. You know who else has this dream? ExxonMobil, MBS. Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the GOP. They want us in a world like this. And then there's a photo of like another one of these crazy interchanges with God only knows, just 
thousands and thousands of people stuck in traffic. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people want to live like this. And there's a photo now. One is of Central Park. Or actually, I think it's Bryant Park in New York. And the other is, it's just a street. I think it's in New York. And it's just people sitting in the street. There's some flowers. And instead of traffic, they're just people. And they're hanging out. It's, you know, it's a sticky, it's a sticky place. Sticky meaning you want to not move on. Once yeah. Linger. Yeah. Like, the, you know, it's like uh, Jane Jacobs, I think, coined the phrase. And it's like what brings you to sit there and, and park benches and trees and lets you gather. And I think there's something really wonderful about gathering in a public space um, in, an, in both like you're anonymous, but you're also with people. You know, the idea of this 15 minute city, I think Paris is doing that where everything you need is in 15 minutes, whether it's by walking, biking or a bus. Mm hmm. And you don't need a car. Yeah, and we have this new term for it, the 15-minute city, right? Or is it the 10-minute city? I forget. I've, I've heard 15-minute city, but 10-minute city sounds even better. <laughs> okay, so next slide. And we want to be with our families in a place like this. And then a photo of an older couple sitting on a stoop in chairs, just, you know, sitting and looking out on the block of, you know, a bunch of apartment buildings and chilling out. But bad actors force car ownership on us to enrich themselves, yet we agree to it. We've all fallen for, for an epic lie told to us by known liars, oil companies, Petra States, the Koch brothers. The lie that our lives and our cities should be filled with cars. And then there's a picture of like this really harsh traffic jam in Manhattan where like it's like gridlock, like everyone's like jammed in and there's not a clear way how they're going to get out. They tricked us into believing that cars equal freedom, that parking is a human right, that buses are to be avoided at all costs, bicycles are a menace, that apartment buildings are an eyesore, and highways are somehow beautiful. And then there's a photo of another highway. But there's hope. Across the world, people are realizing we've been duped, and they're fighting back with a new vision. And here's a photo. Um, I think this it's probably Europe, and it's just people walking on a street with no cars. New York City is embracing bikes and bus lanes. And then I say, wow, to um, Corey in New York City, the city council president. Cities are making cars pay to come in, congestion pricing in London, removing parking. Oslo had 85 spots left for parking and closing streets to cars altogether. Barcelona super blocks to replace traffic with literally children playing. And here's from a super block in Barcelona where they took nine square blocks and you can only come in if it's, you know, a delivery or you absolutely have to drive in. And they took the streets and they put picnic tables and trees and, you know, the, the, the chalk so that kids can play. I mean, it's like, what could be more amazing? When you remove cars and replace them with bike lanes, here's what you get. The end to traffic, pollution, noise and accidents, better health, government, government savings, more shoppers and happier people. And this is all like they've done studies like we know this. Mm hmm. And people love to bike, right? Remember being a kid? Remember your last bike ride? It's fun. We go on vacation to bike. <laughs> we also go on vacation to be places without cars. Bikes are also cool. And here's a photo of Cary Grant and Humphrey Bogart on bikes on some, some lot in Hollywood. And they look really cool. <laughs> As a society, we want people to bike, but our bike lanes are dangerous and deadly. How useful is a sidewalk if in the middle you have to dash across a freeway? It's not useful at all. Safe bike lanes are ridiculously cheap, just politically hard. And then I have um, this meme of these two people. It's, it's, it's a well-known meme of people yelling. And it's this guy says, we're moving the bike lane and a few parking spots will be lost. And then a woman gets up and says, no. I can't, I can't fit my four cars in my garage. Take my baby instead. Oh. And he says, I don't want your baby. I want a safe place to cycle. And then another screaming person at this city meeting is, you won't be able to cycle after I run you over in my F-150. And then the guy gets up and points and says, then your paint will be ruined and who'll cry then? Uh. But we've all seen, you know, videos of people or exist, you know, experienced videos of people screaming at these, you know, meetings about bike lanes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And here's a, this is, I think, one of the bigger issues about the car blindness we're not seeing. Cars are expensive. They cost a minimum of $7,000 per year. And it's money that goes from working families to oil companies and SUV manufacturers. And thanks to the GOP and their donors, taxpayers subsidize drivers who skew higher income while we charge transit riders who skew lower income. I don't understand why cars don't pay for transit to be free. Mm-hmm. When it comes to driving, we're blind to the laws of cause and effect for climate and traffic deaths. Compare the urgency and activism to these public health crises. Opi- opioid deaths per year are 47,000. Gun deaths per year are 40,000. And car accident deaths per year are 40,000. And we, we treat it like an accident. And I, I had this thought that we don't accept the idea that being addicted to heroin is the cost of taking a painkiller for knee surgery, right? Opioid addiction is something that we consider a public health crisis caused by bad actor corporations. And yet we, we see car accidents as just something that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's why they call, up until now they've been calling accidents. All right, we need a better word. From an equity point of view, 80% of Manhattan residents don't own a car, but New York City gives away millions of free parking spaces for private car storage for the most affluent residents, car owners. And then there's a picture of this insane Hummer <laughs> um, just parked on you know, some street in Manhattan for free. Every parking space is 200 square feet, equal to a small studio apartment. Imagine things we could use a parking space for. And then it's a picture of a parklet. And we're seeing them all over with restaurants, with um, the alfresco dining. People are just, uh, the restaurants are able to finally take up that space. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. What if charging drivers could make transit free or close to free? And the math in New York is very straightforward. And I just have a little um, graphic about it. If they really put in congestion pricing, that's $1.5 billion a year. And there's a plan to charge, they don't even charge for all the bridges into Manhattan, $1 billion a year. And if you charge, this is Donald Shoup's plan for charging for street parking, $6 billion a year. This adds up to $8.5 billion. The revenue from, for fares for New York City Transit is $8 billion. So hmm. it would be free to take the subway or the bus. Mm -hmm. If millions could move to car-free neighborhoods, millions of people no longer driving, imagine the impact on the planet, happiness, health, and people's pocketbooks. We have a once in a lifetime opportunity to change. We need to build 7.4 million affordable homes. By definition, affordable housing is apartment housing. Micro units are naturally affordable and they can rent for under $800 a month and they're awesome and mom and pop builders can build them without public dollars. And of course, I'm all for building any way we can, but there is something amazing if the market could build it because then it frees up money, you know, for education and and healthcare. Instead of just building new apartment buildings, we can build new streets designed for walking and biking and no cars. And even better, if car-free neighborhoods were an anti-poverty program, it would be a transfer of wealth from oil companies to low-income families worth $7,000 a year, costing the government nothing and open to anyone. And then I have another graphic. And this to me is so unbelievable, is that SNAP, which is food stamps, has a value per year of $1,517. And it costs taxpayers $68 billion. And there are 40 million people who get that. I don't know if you saw the the photos of people in their cars lining up for food banks during COVID and these massive traffic jams. So feeding a family of four costs $7,000. That's the cost of a car. So every car is a year's supply of, every car in the food line was represented a year's supply of food for a family of four. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And if they, and again, this isn't about forcing people, but this is giving people the option. If they could live, if families, you know, there's a ton of people who would like to live without a car and we don't give them the option. And then we force them to own a car just to get to work, get their kids to school. And then they're lining up at food banks. So there's another solution here. 
-hmm. Car free streets that replace forced car ownership is a progressive public policy for climate, income support, affordable housing. If we can just take the red pill and see that we've been duped. And here's a graphic of like an old ancient city in um, it's somewhere in Europe probably. And it says, we're going to melt the planet because we couldn't figure out how to build a city without cars, something humans could do literally 11,000 years ago. So it's only the past like 150 years we built cities for cars. Like we're really good at building cities. Progressive mayors could solve climate change and address poverty simply by zoning for car-free streets. It costs cities nothing because the free market will build the housing, grocery stores, coffee shops, and if you build it, people will come. And that's the end of the Twitter thread. And so you, how much time did you spend on this? <laughs> um, I spent <laughs> a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and what you told, just told you, you woke up one day and said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write the, uh, this really thorough uh, tweet storm? Yeah, I was, I think I was, I was tweeting here and there and replying to people. And then I, I was like, you know what, let me just tell a story. And that's why I started with the once upon a time, two men had a dream, which is obviously ironic. Um, and, and just the different aspects of it, because it's, it's one of those problems that's so complicated. You know what I mean? It's almost like I think of it as like, you know, it's one story with a ton of little episodes. <laughs> like a, you have to go down a ton of little cul-de-sacs to like, oh, the connection to poverty. Oh, the connection to housing. You know, oh, the connection to climate. And it, it's just, it's incredibly complicated. The, the other comparison that, that keeps coming to my mind, do you know the game Jenga? Yes. Build a tower, right? Yeah. And if you built a Jenga tower of misery, like, all the things we hate, poverty, traffic, you know, ha- uh, the affordable housing crisis. And you literally just pulled out one square cars, like a good portion of it, would just collapse. Mm-hmm. And I think we're not, I, it, it, the other comparison is the war on drugs. It's like one more raid is going to solve this problem. It's like, so <laughs> the solution to the, to, to, it was legalizing Marijuana, that was the solution. It was literally the opposite of what we thought it was. And it's like widening highways is not the solution. It's the opposite of the solution. It's, it's going smaller. It's, it's pedestrianizing. It's getting back to bikes. And again, it's, it's to give people the option to live that way. Mm-hmm. And paying for it by like congestion pricing is one way. I love that. I love or paying for free paying for, well, cause you know, um, the, uh, head of Metro, Phil Washington, has said that he wants to make uh, all transit free to everyone and to pay for it with congestion pricing. I mean, amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, what could be better than free, free transit is so, you know, it, it, it's, it, we want people on transit, right? And even drivers, even, even people who, who, I mean, every driver would prefer half the people were on a bus, right? And that they had the road right. to themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are, some people are, you know, in favor of other people giving up their cars so that they could, I mean, every driver, I guess, would like to be the only driver on the road. And then it would be like one of those car commercials. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, so you are one of the, the unpaid, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the marketer for things we actually need. Uh, out there. I, I wish there was a job description because I would, I would apply for the job because I, I think once people see it and obviously, you know, everyone you're interviewing is seeing it and somehow we're just, we're not connecting the dots. I remember, I don't know if you remember the tobacco wars. I mean, there was a huge debate in the country about whether we should be subsidizing tobacco farmers in North Carolina. Like, should we be, we were paying people to, to grow tobacco. And then we've, everybody was like, wait, 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 wait. We don't want people to smoke. So let's stop subsidizing this. And ultimately, I think that thing that really brought down the tower of tobacco was the attorney general of Mississippi sued the tobacco companies because they realized how many billions and billions of dollars they were spending through Medicaid, which is a state expense on, you know, and it was killing 480,000 people a year. But once they really got their heads around, this is killing our budget. 
And then they sued to claw back the money. And do you remember all those suits? And then it was sort of like, all right, it was like this veil came down and everybody was like, oh my God, where have we been? You know, why? And it was like, we took the red pill and we're like, no, no, we don't want people to, to smoke. So let's stop subsidizing it. And so the anti-tobacco movement, there was the lawsuits, the successful lawsuits, but also there was a lot of education uh, being put out there in PSAs and uh, that helped, I guess. Yeah, and, and to the congestion pricing of it all is that I, I actually, I was volunteering for um, the American Lung Association at the time, so I was like really involved, interested in the issue. And I talked to them and I was like, what are the, you know, there's, you can regulate it, right? And like they did, like you can't advertise anymore and you have to put the warning labels on and then you can tax it and then you can educate people. And they, you obviously should do all of it, but they're like, you know, the truth is it's the taxes. That's the most powerful way. That was, that was what really brought down the smoking rate. And I think they brought it down, you know, it's down like 50% and, and teenagers don't smoke. But I think that there is a, there's, there's an economic reason that somehow broke through. And uh, so, we, but it's, we're actively subsidizing cars in at least two different ways that I can think of. So, you know, to go from actively f financing this problem to taxing it. I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge shift. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and, and I think that if people, if they had to pay the price tag and they understood the price tag, because so much of the costs are hidden. So you don't think about, you think about your monthly lease payment, but you don't think about the gas. You don't think about the insurance, you know, the, the, the fees, the parking fees, you know, God forbid you get in an accident. You don't, those aren't bundled into the cost. They're all invisible in a lot of them. And of course you're not paying for the roads. We're all paying for the road. And the individual driver is not paying the full cost of a car accident. There's not just that insurance is paying for the medical stuff. And that means all of our insurance payments have to go up to absorb those costs. But it's also that police time and court time and jail time, all that stuff that we have to subsidize because the streets aren't safe, the speeds are, you know, people drive too fast, things that we could bring down. I mean, we all know this, that we could bring down the number of car accidents with safer streets, slower speeds, fewer cars. <laughs> but we're all, again, subsidizing people to drive fast, get in accidents, and then, you know, we all pick up the tab. Mm -hmm. Well, amazing, Lindsay. I hope, I hope uh, you find more ways of getting this, getting your message out there and getting traction. Thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. I love your podcast. All right, that was Lindsay. Nice uh, work. Tweet. I saw that tweet, and then I saw, I think, what the next one that you're going to put on. The uh, next one is with somebody who used to, he worked in marketing for cars, which I know you did. Interesting. And so he took a car ad and he inserted his kid. Yeah. And it was, it was pretty scary because when you first see it, he created attention there. It was good. You were expecting to see something horrible and awful happen. It didn't happen. Like, obviously we all expect this kid to get run over or whatever. And well, he, uh, he, he did that get, says right. something. Yeah, he does, but you don't actually see, you don't the, see it. Right. Yeah. I think that right, would so be more impactful, but that would also be expensive to produce and also, yeah. But um, it gets the point across and it gets the point across because we all know that motor vehicles are the cause of death. We know that people drive them irresponsibly and we know that car ads, which is perfect. He, mixed in all of the car ads. I mean, every car ad is telling you to drive as fast as possible and not give a crap about anybody else on the road. And it was perfect the way he did it. Yeah, and he talks about how this is this particular car ad, you know, you see the fine print saying it's a closed set or course, you know, but it's made to look like your everyday city. Right, so, they like hang a right turn through a crosswalk at high speed. This is typical. So, it's typical for car ads. Yeah. 
the guy who made this. It's Tom Flood. He lives in Canada. Here he is. I've seen you inserting kids into car commercials. That's that's kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, it's just the the, the car ads are just so outrageous, <laughs> to say the least, and so and generally so 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 reckless. Um, and I just think it's a neat contrast to see the reality of what you know these auto manufacturers promote as far as what their cars can do. And it's generally power and speed and then seeing the realities of, you know, power and speed in, in, you know, in, in real life and situations on the street that we all have to deal with. Was that your kid you put in the car commercial? Those are my own kids. Yeah, that's right. So can you describe it? Which, which one, uh, the last one, sorry. (laughs) I, I, I guess I've probably overdone it a little bit is, um, I'm trying to remember which one. Which one are no, you well, referring? Tell, tell me the whole. Tell me the whole series, then. Well, there's there's a few, but it's generally the same kind of idea. Just it's it's the constant influx and um, push towards speed and power um, and size, and it's it's really just it's frustrating, you know, as a as a person that I drive a car, but I ride a bicycle most places, and so do my kids, just to get to and from school and daycare. Um, so you know, the, the way we're generally treated as kind of second class on the roads is a bit of, of a frustration. So I just thought it'd be interesting to put uh, that highlight that contrast on the movement of, you know, some of our more vulnerable road users versus, you know, 445 horsepower metal hunks, you know, <laughs> move, moving through our streets. So you'll take a, I don't know how many times you've done it, but I, I just saw the latest, I guess you yeah. take like one of those, car commercials that looks pretty sinister when you yeah. juxtapose it with a kid riding a bike. Right. And, and that's the kind of the, it's, it's, it's not funny, but it, the language they use is, is very sinister. It's, you know, speed demons, you know, drifting or burnouts, all these things that are just really promoting reckless driving. And that's how they market their vehicles. So I'll just take some of those clips and, you know, obviously there's no, I don't have any copyright for that, but, um, uh, take those and juxtapose it, like you said, with our kids just biking to school as as the way we would through these same streets that they sell these cars um, to be driving on. Yeah. The, so the one I saw was this, I guess, supposed to be sexy woman, and she's uh, just making these crazy turns in this in a in the city and yeah. throwing her whole body into it, and just to, to impress her passenger, it looks like, and. And she's talking to her passenger yeah. as she goes. And then the words come up, uh, keep your eyes on the road, please. Yeah. And it shows there had been a kid biking alongside or in front of or behind a car. And then there's just a, the kid's bike and it says too late. Yeah. That's so that's a Nissan, a Nissan commercial. And that person in the car is a celebrity. It's Brie Larson. I don't really I just know she's a celebrity. I don't really know her. <laughs> I'm kind of out of touch with things, but um, she's, she's yeah, going through the city streets and she takes some of those turns. If you've probably seen it pretty, pretty aggressively on, on the streets there. And yeah, it, it's, it's just, it just sends such a poor message um, to, you know, the potential customers that are going to be driving these cars. It, it's a, it's a direct message of what they are. Sh- the capabilities they're highlighting of the vehicle are all kind of shown in a reckless manner. Lawsuit? Can we sue? I don't know. I, I, I feel like people might have gone down that road. That's not my expertise, but um, it's, it's, it's pretty borderline, to be totally honest. I mean, so, and a bit of background on me, I used to work in auto advertising. Uh, so I worked on the account services side, and I worked on Hyundai in, here in Canada, Hyundai Canada corporate brand work, um, as well as Toyota Canada corporate brand work. Um, so I was a part of making commercials like this and never did we do anything quite as aggressive as that, but our legal teams were very, very particular about what could be shown and what couldn't be shown, but it's getting to a point where specifically that Nissan ad, it, I know it's a closed course. We all know that, but it's in a city that looks like every other city that we all live in. So it doesn't look like a closed race. It doesn't look like a closed course. It looks like a city and that's what they're trying to get across. And if you look at the bottom, I mean, I fudged the legal myself, but you can see the real legal where it says, you know, closed course. Please don't try, you know, professional drivers. But it looks like a normal city where you'd be driving your car. 
Yeah, well, clearly it's trying to say that when you're on your way to get coffee with your friend in the middle of the day, you know, uh, in your in your really expensive car, uh, you know, just do your best to try to impress your passenger with, you know, how careless and dangerous and you are as a driver and, and how sexy it makes you. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's the tagline they actually use is I think it's no compromise. So generally with vehicles, they want to promote, you know, the, the functionality of the vehicle as well as it's not compromising what they won't say, but speed and power, essentially, you know, fun, the fun stuff. And then just on one more thing before I want to go to a different one of your tweets. Um, the, what, have you ever thought about this? I know some people have asked why there's a speed, a built-in speed limit on e-bikes of 28 miles per hour. And then there's no built-in speed limit in cars. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 a really, it's a really great question. And it's something I think about a lot. Um, you know, there was that pretty famous video out of that um, gentleman. This was in West Sussex in, in the UK. And he was driving an, an Audi. I think it was 200 miles an hour. And he filmed himself doing that. And I've cut something together with that as well. But I mean, for us here, that's 321 kilometers an hour on you know a freeway on a motorway which there is no reason a vehicle needs to go above 110 100 kilometers like whatever the the max speed limit speed limit it is on your highways that that should really be what we're topping out at here there's there's no reason for anything more excessive than you know 70 80 miles an hour it's just it's it's ludicrous it's it's completely pointless and yes, I, I understand there's autobahns and there's freeways and, and motorways in, the, in Europe that you can go whatever you want, but um, there should be a limit, obviously. Our uh, co-host on Bike Talk, his name is Don Ward, and he's a real advocate here for safe streets, bike lanes. Right. Um, and uh, he used to do uh, marketing for Nissan, too. Okay. And I wonder if that's making people bike advocates. It's possible. I, I, it's funny how things turn for me. I was, I've always biked everywhere, just to and from jobs, concerts, whatever, with living in the city. Um, and I never really thought of it outside of my own kind of personal experience. Like, yeah, it kind of sucks, but whatever. And the moment I kind of started thinking about it was, I guess, selfishly, when I went out on the street with my kids going to daycare, school, things like that. That's kind of when, you know, the light went off. Um, and again, it's from that, oh shit, this is really not good. This is a really bad situation for, you know, not just, not just kids and, and, and myself, but like all of the population shouldn't be driving in this or shouldn't be riding around this. This is, a, is an absolute nightmare. And the thing that really is frustrating that I think everyone would agree upon is a lot of our cities keep promoting themselves as these, you know, safe cities and all these implementations that the cities put forward. And it's, really nothing. It's just fluff, right? By the time, you know, you get on the street, nothing's really changed. Well, it seems like now there is some movement in some cities, uh, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it having to do with COVID. Yeah. Um, but we'll see if it, if it's permanent. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, having a kid makes you aware, you know, cars are hitting buildings. Yeah. You know, there's nothing you can do yeah. if the car, you, you can't outsmart a distracted driver. And um, so yep. are, are you, yeah. I was just going to say, it's, we, it, I mean, school's not in right now for us, of course, due to everything that's going on. But around here, we have these like, wear a yellow day, roll to school. They try to encourage the biking and the, and the walking and, and scootering or whatever it is. And they just don't do anything to make that happen and make it safer. It would be really great if we had like, you know, bike install, bike infrastructure installation day rather than just wear yellow kids. Like it's, it's so crazy how they push these, 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 these programs that they want our children to bike and walk to school. And they want, you know, our seniors to do the same um, to where they're going yet. They're not willing to really put anything into it to make that happen. Yeah. And so when you look at a place like Amsterdam, and you look right. at how it became that way, you know, a lot of people think it's just who they are. They're just the type of people to bike. But if you look at what happened, there was a campaign. There was an ad campaign or, a you know, a grassroots campaign that was highlighting kids who died. And it counted the right. number of kids who died. 
and these kids dying are everywhere. There are cars. Yeah. And so, I mean, do you, do, do you think of what you're doing as something that could be part of such a campaign? Not, not really. If, um, to me, it's just more of an outlet <laughs> for my frustrations that, that just kind of arose from having my kids out with me on the roads. It was just a way for me to just, yeah, vent my frustrations kind of through some sort of small creative way. So if it, if it becomes a part of something and does make change and that's, that's really amazing. And, um, you know, been had the opportunity recently to make a couple of spots for a couple of organizations, which has been really nice. And, you know, those organizations are making real change in their city. So maybe in a roundabout way. Do you have a lot of people who respond to you on Twitter? So you're one of those people who just asks a question every now and then just to rally everybody. <laughs> so, so sometimes. Yeah. I, I don't know about a lot of people, but, um, it's nice to engage with people. I, I, I will say I've met so many people through this kind of bike Twitter world, which has been really, really amazing. Are you an influencer? No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think so. No, you don't like I, I'm inspired by a lot of people I've met. Like, I mean, there's so much bad and, and, and not great things out there online, but again, I've met so many great people on through Twitter and through this bike Twitter community. We, we were setting up socials, kind of when COVID hit again in kind of mid-March, set up a few bike Twitter socials where a whole bunch of people throughout North America, we'd all come together on a Zoom call just to kind of pass the time and catch up and chat a little bit about bikes and a lot more about life. So it was really, really neat. We had like, you know, 15 or 16 people maybe each time. Really good time. So people all over North America just chatting and a few from the UK as well. It's just nice to stay, it's nice to have a, a world you can connect with. And yeah, it's been, been really neat. What, what do you call the the work that you do? Videography? It's not. It's uh, yeah. It? I don't. I don't really know. To be totally honest, it just kind of happened organically. It's mm -hmm. kind of just advocacy, ad work, I guess. I should have a better. I should have a better pitch for you, but I don't. Sorry. <laughs> advocacy ad work. Yeah. So like commercials, but it's not commercial. So you right. can't really call it a commercial. Correct. Ad your PSAs. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like PSAs. And maybe you're open to collaborating with people who have ideas that could send you some. Always. All right, cool. Well, I'm glad I reached out and that you were receptive. Yeah, thank you so much. And that would be it. So you heard your name mentioned? Yeah, that's cool. I've, I've thought about that same concept of cutting together some of these car ads that you see. And my thought was to make it a whole lot more gory and graphic, but... Uh, I think uh, he did a good job. He created a tension there and uh, you get the point. There's car ads. I mean, there's a car ad for, there's one that I was linked to for Audi, which shows a soccer mom driving her young girl to soccer practice and Audi um, uh, crossfades in like like a rally car raceway. Have you ever seen those rally car raceways where the rally car blasts through and there's a crowd and you're like, wow, I can't believe people are standing this close to the, to the car as it like flies through the air. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like they, they actually have an ad where they're encouraging a soccer mom to drive a rally yeah. car driver through crowds. I mean, the imagery is of a crowd and of course, in the Audi commercial, it's the crowd cheering her on. But it's like, so you're showing this visual of a car driver driving fast through people and getting cheered on. And that's, that's their ad. Have you heard about that research showing that the more expensive your car, the less likely you are to yield to someone at a crosswalk? Is that basically saying that rich people are douchebags? Uh, drivers. I, you know, I... That's all I, this study showed. I, I mean, I was hit with a $90,000 Jaguar. See? Um, there you go. Um, I think that more expensive cars are obviously faster and have more power. And the people that drive them are a certain type of person that, you know, can afford that and probably, uh, you know, probably have a privileged sort of view of the world, you know? And uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if that was real. And then I wouldn't be surprised if people driving beater cars, 
um, drive slower and a little more careful because they're probably afraid of breaking their car and also uh, getting the attention of the cops. Well, I know you didn't ask me this, but I drive like I had a trailer on the car. I realized this when I actually put a trailer on my car and I realized that that's how I drive all the time as if I had a trailer. Which means what, that that you drive cautiously? Yeah, I drive slower than the, often slower than the speed limit, which is just. Because we've worked on your driving style a lot. (laughs) Has it changed since since I've shown you the, the light? So you're referring to hypermiling, the philosophy, the driving school of... Yeah. Did we just check off another uh, Bike Talk bingo box? Which which one is that? I think there's one in there about hypermiling. Uh... Yeah, I mean, it, it's the idea that, you know, I don't know if you can sum it up as, as just driving so that you don't have to actually break right or do you break you you want to break and accelerate as little as possible and as lightly as possible so you you don't rush up to red lights if you drive fast up to a red light and you stop and you wait 15 seconds for the light to change you did not increase your trip speed at all all you did was put a lot of stress on your car, waste gas, and also make the road more hostile, you know, for pedestrians and cyclists and the cyclists who might be in the road riding at 12 to 15 miles an hour as you blast past them to the red light up ahead at 40 miles an hour, you are not going faster than that cyclist because the cyclist is going to reach the light by the time it turns green and leapfrog ahead of you. And the, you know, you have to do it again. So there's a lot of times that happens to me when I'm riding a bike, I'll just be cruising along at 15, 20 miles an hour. A car will blast right past me. And sometimes I'll do like a punishment pass because I'm in their way and they get mad and then they have to stop at the light punishment passed which is basically like passing closely and fast to sort of try to teach you a lesson like get out of my way kind of thing like drivers do that have you ever noticed that drivers do that yeah happens to me especially when i'm taking the lane so i call it a car tantrum car tantrum punishment pass um whatever you want to call it it's just a dumbass driver who is speeding up to a light stops and then you going at more you're closer to the average speed will head right through that green light and pass the car that just sped past you they're stacked up in traffic you pass by and they have to pass you again and they get pissed off about it and nothing is more common yeah so now you know as you know hypermiling while you're driving if everyone would hypermile you know we'd definitely be consuming a lot less gas a lot less car our cars would last probably two three hundred thousand miles more than they currently do i would love to see an ad for hypermiling yeah, the new Nissan Rogue. Drive this thing gently because it's actually a piece of crap. <laughs> so you ready for the last one? Let's do it. This one is... Hold on a second. Okay. Mark Ostro. He's, he's on the board of Seattle Neighborhood Greenways. And he's a core leader of Queen Anne Greenways. He's been a blogger at TheUrbanist.org. You know the, urban, or the Urbanist? Yep. In this interview, he does with Eric Ochoa, who's a student of mine. I was also his debate coach when he was in high school. He retweeted my retweet of Mark's tweet, so I asked him to do the interview. And before that, Mark reads his own tweet, and here it is. Hi, this is Mark Ostro, and I am recording myself reading some of my tweets. I don't hate cars, but I love what's possible when you have less of them. 
I love kids being able to safely walk to school. I love clean air. I love hearing birds or having a normal conversation along the street. I love dense, walkable communities built to a human scale. I love sitting at a cafe and watching the world go by. I love prosperous black and brown communities not bulldozed to build freeways to the suburbs. I love having a climate that provides habitat for human beings. I love when streets provide public space for gathering, protesting injustice, dining, or otherwise living one's life without the imperative to move or store as many cars as possible. I love walking in my neighborhood and wish doing so didn't require constant hypervigilance. Someone loved each of the 40,000 Americans killed in traffic violence last year. Nick reached out to me, Mark, um, after I, um, I just retweeted one of the, one of the pictures that, that you um, posted on Twitter uh, earlier this week, I believe. It was about um, just like outdoor patio seating with like, you know, people mingling out in the streets with very um, virtually no, no cars in the streets and everything. And that was kind of like your ideal um, view of what you know, a state should look like or could look like here in the U.S. And um, I thought it was great, too. Hence, you know, why I liked it. So um, just to reiterate for a bit, um, where exactly was that picture taken? Oh, that? Um, I took that in Utrecht in the Netherlands last year. Um, the picture is in a part of the city called the Vismarkt. So Vismarkt means fish market. It's the old fish market. Uh, from Utrecht and there's kind of like a bridge or a wide bridge or a cover over the canal at that spot and that's where the market used to be and now it's just a spot with you know tables and chairs and umbrellas and there's a restaurant across the street and uh, you can sit down at the chairs and tables and order something and they bring the food over from the restaurant across the street and when I was there my wife and I just you know we had lunch there and afterwards I snapped a picture because, uh, you know, I, I travel quite a bit and uh, I take a lot of pictures while I'm, while I'm traveling. And that just seemed like one of many scenes that is like really normal in places like the Netherlands or France or wherever. Um, but something that's very unusual for uh, places like Seattle or most of the U.S., yeah, and I, I kind of want to touch upon that because usually when we hear places of, like in Europe, you know, that picture that you took in the Netherlands, places like France, um, various countries, the, the countries in Scandinavia and everything, um, there's always this talk about how the bike culture over there is like huge, like people bike to work, people pretty much bike everywhere, which is, a, you know, a contrast to the car culture here, especially in LA where everybody's just so into driving and into their cars and like you know cyclists are kind of looked down upon so i mean i've never been to seattle i've never been to washington but i've heard kind of like you know there's a bit um they're a bit more nicer maybe and correct me if i'm wrong like i said i've never been but what's like culture over in seattle like seattle i've heard is better than a lot of u.s cities um it definitely is i would say it's a it's a safer more comfortable place to ride a bike than la um, you know, I go to LA every once in a while. And when I do, I try to make sure my trip lines up with Ciclavia. So maybe my view of, of LA is mostly Ciclavia, which is incredible and wonderful. Um, but I know that the process of riding your bike to Ciclavia, you know, you take your life in your hands and Seattle, a lot of Seattle is pretty similar to that. We do have narrower streets and maybe less of a car culture. But uh, there's a lot of work to be done in Seattle. Um, but overall, I would encourage you to come visit sometime and uh, give it a try. It's getting better slowly. Um, and our advocacy organization is organized to try to make it better. And, you know, one step at a time. Speaking of trying to um, incorporate, you know, European bike culture here into the U.S., do you think the Pacific Northwest is the ideal location 
here in the country to do that? Or are there other places here in the U.S. that can sort of take the lead in that? I, I mean, I think L.A. is the ideal location. Your, your weather is gorgeous. You've got plenty of space on your streets to uh, provide protection for people on bikes. Uh, just for some reason, accident of history, I don't know what it was, but L.A. became so insanely car dominated. And so there's a lot of work to, to do there. But places like Portland and Seattle and Vancouver, B.C., um, for some reason, we ended up with slightly narrower streets and maybe slower cars for the most part. Um, you know, we have old city centers that were maybe developed, you know, most of the cities were developed around in the 1920s. And so there were fairly pedestrian oriented, streetcar oriented parts of the city. And so I think for that reason, in part, we have a little better, uh, places to ride bikes, but still it's, it's tough. It's, it's hard everywhere in the U S I think only when I go to places like the Netherlands, do I really see what the possibilities are? And, uh, I'll have to admit, it kind of makes me angry when I come home and I see what we've done to our cities, uh, compared to what's possible in other places. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Mark, um, the topic of this conversation was, was that picture, but it wasn't just a singular picture. It was, a thread of different things that you know you said this is what i wish for this is what i want to see you back at home um do you want to talk to the people listening in what, what all that was about yeah you know actually the the tweet itself was inspired um by a troll <laughs> I, maybe i shouldn't call her a troll she's like someone who follows me and she very often tweets with uh slightly differing views every once in a while uh, she ran for city council here in Seattle, and she lost pretty badly. But that's kind of when I, when she got on my radar, and maybe I got on her radar. And she replied to one of my tweets, and she said, "Is there a personal reason behind your hate for cars?" And you know, I thought about that because, I mean, right away, you know, the framing. Um, to me, the question felt like a rhetorical device or a rhetor rhetorical ploy. You know, first of all, there's a premise built into that question. And I wasn't sure whether I really accepted that premise. You know, she's, a, she's asking, why do you hate cars? It's kind of like, why are you a bad person? And, you know, why should I even answer that when it kind of sounds like you've already reached a conclusion about me? And I think the other kind of rhetorical ploy baked into that question, you know, is that she puts me on the side of hate. And I'm as if I'm the unreasonable person who hates and she's the reasonable person who sees both sides of the issue. You know, uh, what is your reason for your hate for cars? Mm -hmm. uh, so I gave it some thought. And I mean, I admit my visceral reaction was kind of like, uh, fuck yes, I hate cars. They kill people. You know, they terrorize me every day. They terrorize a lot of people. Uh, 40,000 people die every year in, in the U.S. Uh, but then I think my annoyance around the framing of that question um, kind of made me think about it. And I don't want to encourage trolls, <laughs> you know, to like think that they're making me think about things more deeply. But sometimes they do. And she did. And, you know, I, I think I have, I definitely have deep antipathy about the role of cars in our society. I think that everyone should. Um, but I realize that those feelings really start from love. You know, they start, it's love, it, it's sadness, it's deep concern for other people, it's frustration, uh, it's a desire to make the world a better place. And so I kind of dug up a picture, the picture that I tweeted from my photo roll and kind of captured my feelings and I tweeted, you know, I don't hate cars, but I love what's possible when you have less of them. Yeah, and you mentioned a little something about that in the thread where um, I think the, the transformation of city spaces into more sort of like pedestrian friendly, bike friendly areas would actually like result in like, you know, bringing people closer together, which kind of like erases some of that little like bit that you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, 
my feelings about cars are because I love kids being able to walk to school. That, that came to mind first because that's really one of the things that got me into advocacy was my kid was in grade school and I wanted him to be able to walk to school and feel safe. And I was, I was terrified to let him do that. And I drove him instead. I drove him all through uh, his time in, in grade school. Even though we lived a, a mile away, he had to cross two arterials and there weren't safe crossings. And I was really pushing to make safe crossings for, for my kid and for other kids who went to his elementary school. And, you know, that effort failed, but in the process, I really, I think, developed a passion for trying to make our, safe, our, our streets safer um, because there are so many benefits. Yeah, um, I haven't really gone out to see so much because, obviously, because of what's going on right now, but through, you know, um, I talk social media feed, I've seen how certain parts here in, in L.A., certain sections of the street have been closed off to, you know, encourage people to go out on their bikes or, or just go out and, and take a walk. Um, do you see anything post COVID happening that's sort of going to be positive towards, you know, um, bike advocacy or like, you know, just being able to ride out um, and feel safer on the streets afterwards? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I think there's great possibility for that. We've pushed um, to get, what are called uh, stay healthy streets here in Seattle. And those are basically neighborhood greenways, kind of already fairly calm streets that have been enhanced with signs that say that the road is closed. And so that is really realizing the possibilities of these neighborhood greenways. And it's encouraging people to just walk down the middle of the street. And if you think about it, most streets, neighborhood streets, you should be able to do that. They should be, you know, cars should have access. They can have access, but they should also be safe for people just to walk and bike. And so that's what these streets do. And Seattle at least has already said that they are going to make some of these permanent. And then Seattle has also like created a permit system for restaurants to have street closures and to put restaurants on the middle in the middle of the street. And we've seen a few of those in Seattle and they're wonderful. They're just, they're just wonderful. And it really helps to realize a little bit of what's in that picture where we can just sit on the street and walk and ride bikes and enjoy a beer out on the street and just do all the things that people really want to do. I've definitely seen some, some transformation of that here. Um, there are certainly, um, you know, of course, an increase in bike lanes here in Los Angeles. Um, in downtown, there's some areas where, you know, seating has gotten out into sort of like the middle of the street, but, you know, cars still zoom past, um, you know, uh, diners and, you know, people just sitting around. But I think ultimately, though, in order to get to that ideal place, um, drivers need to, you know, get a little bit more empathy for, you know, not just like cyclists, but also people wanting to like go out and have a nice time and sitting out with their, you know, with their friends, with their family, whatever. Um, how do you think that starts? How do you think we should like, you know, educate drivers to kind of sort of ditch that, you know, car mentality that it's sort of been ingrained into them pretty much their entire lives and, you know, you know, think differently about you know, getting around or, you know, transportation and all that. Yeah, you talk about car drivers feeling empathy, and I kind of feel like you need to build some of that empathy into the streets. Um, cars, people in cars have kind of a windshield perspective, and that only increases when cars are moving fast. And so if you engineer streets so that cars can't go fast or don't go fast or don't feel like it's safe for them to go fast, um, if you slow them down, and you sort of take away some of that entitlement and share some of that entitlement with people who walk and bike and just sit in the street, I think that you can start to uh, convert some of those people to thinking of themselves less as car drivers and more as just people who might be walking, might be biking, and who might be driving, um, but really people who see all sides of the situation. And so to do that, it's going to take a lot of work to convert our streets and transform them uh, into places where car drivers feel less entitled. And that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of advocacy and maybe pouring a lot of concrete. Um, 
but my hope that from this awful situation with the pandemic, um, that there is kind of a silver lining and that silver lining can be a little bit of transformation of our streets. Talk a little bit about how you use social media to sort of, you know, get your opinions out there and how you advocate for, you know, the rights for like cyclists and all that. Yeah, I mean, most of my advocacy work is pretty much behind the scenes. It's lobbying, it's it's going to meetings, um, but Twitter is a really great tool and I've really enjoyed being on Twitter and using that as a tool to communicate and to kind of test ideas. And so a lot of times I'll tweet something and uh, no one cares, <laughs> you know? And you know, okay, maybe that was a good thought, but a good a good experiment, but it didn't really work out. Uh, but then a lot of other times I tweet something and it really kind of resonates with people. And when that happens, I think it starts a conversation. And even though, you know, I don't have millions of people following me, I've got maybe 5,000 or so, but it's a decent enough group of people and we're all fairly like-minded and interested in these topics. And so I feel like it's a great way to start a conversation and develop ideas and then test them so that those ideas can maybe be used out in the wider world with people who may not already be converts to our, to our cause. Fantastic. Mark, so it was great having you on. It was great having a chat with you. Keep doing what you're doing. And hopefully once all of this is over, we can start seeing some of the things that we've talked about and feel a little safer out on the road. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate being on your podcast. We're back. That was Mark Ostro, and he's big at Seattle Greenways or Queen Anne Greenways. And it was good to hear a lot of stuff he said. What do you think of this new format? I like it. Um, this American bike. And I like, uh, who's, the, who's the person who was doing the interview in that last one? You said it was Eric? Eric Ochoa? Yeah, he's good. Let's get him on some more stuff. That is a good idea. All right, you ready for the theme song? Yes. Okay, here we go. Anything else to say? Fuck bikes. It's all about four by fours. I rise in the morning and greet the day. Pull out the bike and I'm on my way. The transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Green in the green, I'm saving the planet. Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint up your ass. I'm on a motherfucking bike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 